Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and I am your host for Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Thurston Clark, the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Publication Award for the Geographic Society of Chicago, and a Lowell Thomas Award for Travel Literature. He is the author of Honorable Exit, How a Few Brave Americans Risked All to Save Our Vietnamese Allies at the End of the War, published by our friends at Anchor Books. Thurston, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's an honor to have you here. And first, Thurston, before we talk about the specifics of your important new book and then some circumstances in the current world that are relatable, I want to ask you about the world we are living in today. Specifically, I'm referring to the coronavirus. And this is a two-part question, Thurston. One, how are you doing in this strange time? And two, how are you approaching the marketing of your book when most people are having to stay at home? Well, the marketing of the book is, is, is quite difficult. <laughs> um, I'm used to this. Actually, the hardcover came out the same week that the Mueller report was um, mm. issued last year. And uh, in that case, I wrote several op-eds, one for the Los Angeles Times and another for Time Magazine to try to get the book in front of uh, more readers. Um, this time, um, I've been signed up for lots of uh, podcasts and some publicity that I can do from home. Uh, I live in the Adirondacks on Lake Champlain in upstate New York, and uh, I have three adult daughters, and two of them have come home to roost uh, for for several months, I think. One uh, one with a grandson and her husband, and the other with her, her, her boyfriend, so... We're, we're all hunkered down here. Uh, we have lots of space, and we have local farmers, so we go and buy the food from them. And so far, it's working out. But uh, I think we're planning to all be here for quite a while. I never thought I'd be uh, with my uh, adult daughters again for such a long period of time. And so far, it's been great. Right. Thank you so much, Thurston. And because we have a lot of young listeners who may be unfamiliar with the circumstances surrounding the war in Vietnam, can you tell us why there was a conflict between North and South Vietnam and why America was involved? Well, our involvement really started while uh, Vietnam was still a French colony after World War II. Um, And the communists there was a communist movement headed by Ho Chi Minh, um, who was an American ally during the war, in the final months of the war. Um, the French came back and tried to reassert control over uh, Vietnam, which had been, at the time, um, more or less occupied by the Japanese. Um, there was a brutal war between the French forces and the uh, Vietnamese allied with, with France and the communists, uh, ending in 1954 with the defeat of the French at Tien Yuen Phu. After that, there was a peace agreement and there were supposed to be um, free elections. The country was partitioned into North and South and there were supposed to be elections in both areas. It didn't happen. Um, the Russians and the Chinese backed the communists, of course, and we we supported uh, the government of the South of South Vietnam. Um, and from that, uh, we became more and more involved. We first started sending advisors to advise the uh, South Vietnamese army. Um, after Pre- President Kennedy was assassinated, we had 16,000 
thousand advisors there, but they were not in combat. President Johnson um, increased the number of American troops there uh, by several hundred thousand and allowed them to take part in combat operations. Uh, and so the war went on um, through the Johnson administration into the Nixon administration. And finally, there was a peace agreement uh, negotiated by uh, Henry Kissinger for the United States and um, with the North Vietnamese in um, 1970. Um, it was finally signed in uh, 73, January of 73, um, that supposedly um, was going to bring, according to Nixon, peace with honor. It only lasted two years because it allowed the North Vietnamese to keep part of their army in the South. Um, and so in March of 75, um, the North Vietnamese forces and the South Vietnamese communists uh, started a massive uh, attack on the forces of the South Vietnamese forces. By then, American troops had left South Vietnam um, and we had gotten our POWs out of the North and that was part of the uh, Paris Peace Accords, the uh, peace agreement in 73 that was supposed to end the war. End the war. So there we were in, in March of 75, and we still had thousands of American advisors, uh, uh, not military, because we couldn't have more than 50 military, uniformed military people in the South, but we had several thousand American contractors, much as we have um, in Afghanistan today, and, and, and in Iraq as well. And many of them had married uh, South Vietnamese women uh, and had South Vietnamese families. We also had a huge, we had the biggest embassy of any embassy around the world at the time in 1975, and AID workers and Americans working for nonprofits. Uh, so a huge American, 10,000 uh, uh, community of uh, close to 10,000 Americans. We also had, of course, the South Vietnamese government, uh, which re had relied on our backing in the South Vietnamese army. Um, and many of them were worried that if the communists took over, that they would be uh, imprisoned, assassinated, executed. Uh, and many Americans who worked in Vietnam and also who had worked in Vietnam and were back in Washington then had the same kind of worries that there was going to be what was then called a bloodbath. And that worry was exacerbated by what happened in the middle of April uh, in Cambodia. Um, when the communists took over Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge started a horrific uh, a genocidal campaign against the non-communist uh, people who've been allied with the non-communist government. So there were a lot of Americans worried about this. At the time, the Americans who who either in Washington or in the United States who had fought in Vietnam or served in Vietnam, uh, they were worried about what was going to happen to their Vietnamese friends. And the Americans working in uh, Saigon and around South Vietnam were worried what was going to be the fate of their Vietnamese friends and their co-workers. And so my book is about um, how these people um, mounted what I call originally a clandestine mutiny against the policy of their government and managed in the end um, to get in six, 
a period of six weeks, 130,000 of Vietnamese out of the country, South Vietnamese out of the country, flown to the United States, where they all became, within, within a space of a year, they were resettled and on the road to becoming American citizens. And I think the contrast between that, that act of, of charity and uh, really fulfilling what we was considered our moral duty to the Vietnamese is quite a contrast with what has been going on now with, in the case of the interpreters and people who've fought with our uh, forces and helped our forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's actually what gave me the idea for this book in the first place. Right. Thank you, Thurston. And this new book, Honorable Exit, um, concerned with the Vietnam War, specifically with the end of the war, as you say, um, after it had been lost by America and we began the process of evacuation, this book opens with a photograph. Can you tell us about this photograph and how it compares with other memorable war photographs, such as the one of the planting of the American flag at Iwo Jima? Yes. Um, I think that... that um Every, most of the listeners will have seen this photograph or have heard about it. It shows a helicopter on the top of a building in Saigon, and there's a ladder, and a group of people are climbing the ladder uh, towards the helicopter uh, that's perched on what actually was an elevator shaft. At the top of the ladder, there's a man in a white shirt, a civilian, clearly an, a, an American, uh, helping people board that helicopter. Um, the picture it became the kind of an iconic picture of the Vietnam War, um, symbolizing uh, America's defeat and, and disgrace um, that we had to evacuate ourselves on helicopters off of rooftops after this war that had cost us uh, billions of dollars and 55,000 American lives of American servicemen. <clears throat> And many people who saw this, and in fact, when the photograph was first um, put out by the Associated Press, uh, it was identified, the building was identified as the roof of the American embassy. Uh, but when you look, well, I looked into it more and uh, did more reading on it, and clearly what it was not uh, the embassy, it was a building in downtown uh, Saigon. The people on the stairway were... Uh, all Vietnamese. The helicopter belonged to Air America, which was a uh, CIA-operated um, uh, airline that had the, ran the was run by civilian pilots. Um, and the helicopter was one of thirty of the uh, Air America helicopters that were pulling people off of rooftops in Saigon. Now these uh, pilots were taking tremendous risks. In fact, a lot of them got uh, bullet holes in the in the airplanes in the helicopters um, by flying by flying but nobody knew if they were being shot at by the South Vietnamese or the North Vietnamese um, anyway the I was able to track down um, some of the people in the photo who were on the on the stairway and uh, interview them here in the United States and find out a little bit about them and about the, the man in the white shirt who was uh, pulling them abro uh, uh, onto the helicopter. Two of the people near the top were both doctors who are uh, practicing. One is still practicing in the, outside of Atlanta, and another is an anesthesiologist. There was a teenage girl who has become a biotech uh, researcher in Southern California. Um, and the man on in the white shirt was... Uh, was an air uh, assistant 
air operations officer from the American embassy. Um, what they were, these um, rooftops had been prepared uh, two or three weeks before with H's um, painted on them in day glow paint so the pilots could see where to, where to land, where to put the skids of their helicopters. Um, all prepared clandestinely because the American embassy, the American ambassador at the time, Graham Martin, didn't want this done because he thought it would panic the local population to see these roofs being prepared. Um, anyway, uh, once that helicopter took off, the man in the white shirt um, didn't climb in with everybody else. Instead, he hung on to the skids, he hung on to the helicopter. Um, had somebody inside hold his arm, and in his other arm, he was holding a Swedish machine gun in case they took any ground fire, he was gonna fire back, and he wanted someone holding his arm um, so that he didn't um, fall to his death if he was uh, wounded. So here was a guy um, who was risking his life to put two or three Vietnamese strangers in this helicopter and get them out of Saigon. Um, and I was struck by his heroism, and I learned more about him. His name was Odie Harnage, and he had been wounded in Okinawa, um, and at the time was wearing a patch over his eye because some of the old shrapnel had worked its way back into his eye in the last couple of months. And um, he was following the Marine Corps um, credo of not leaving, you know, your allies behind. Um, and of course on Okinawa, he had been fighting along with his buddies and fighting for his country, but here he was risking his life so that two or three more South Vietnamese who feared for their lives if they stayed could become American citizens. And I was very struck by his heroism and by how little I, everything I had assumed about that photograph turned out to be, to, uh, to be wrong. Thank you, Thurston. And a lot of the Vietnamese evacuees, um, at least the ones who were successfully evacuated, compared their rescuers to Oscar Schindler. Uh, can you tell us more about this sentiment in these comparisons? Yeah, um, that was specifically um, made by a Vietnamese woman um, who was evacuated by, by, with her two children. She was the widow of a South Vietnamese um, politician who'd been assassinated a, a, a several years earlier by the communists. And she was, uh, she and her American friends thought that she would be at risk um, once the, commu if the communists took Saigon. And so they wanted to get her out of the country. Um, and at the time, the Vietnamese police who were, and, and um, military who were guarding the entrance to Tanzanut Airport, which was both the civilian airport and also the military airport, but you had to get through a police checkpoint. And Vietnamese citizens were not allowed onto the airfield, uh, through the air base, to get on a plane unless they had passports and an exit visa. And the, uh, the bureaucracy had kind of broken down, so it was getting these exit visas was extremely difficult, uh, as well as getting a passport without paying huge bribes and waiting several weeks. So instead, um, her Vietnamese friends um, what decided that they were going to, uh, her American friends decided that they were going to smuggle her out, and they would have to get her, you know, have to get her through um, 
by pretending that she was married to an American. So they brought a, they got a one of the limousines from the embassy. They kind of uh, purloined it, and um, they pulled up to a house where she and her children had been kept in this really a kind of safe house to keep them there for a, a, a few hours before they made the run to the airport. And um, as they headed to the airport uh, in this car, which had American diplomatic plates on it, uh, the chauffeur then uh, stopped at another house and this woman, Jackie Bong, and her children were hustled into a large black sedan flying an American flag from one bumper and a South Vietnamese from the other. And uh, meanwhile, a um, Jim Eccles, who was a longtime American resident of Saigon who managed a charter airline, sat next to the driver. And Bong and her children climbed into the back seat to join Pat Barnett, an American in his late 30s who ex introduced to her as your husband. And um, so they used that to bluff their way, the fact that she was the wife of, pretending that she was the wife of, a, of an American um, a military man to bluff their way through the, um, uh, the checkpoint at Tanzanut Airport. And later, um, when she was writing about this event, um, in her memoirs, she wrote, I was being shipped out clandestinely with the help of Americans. It reminded me of the stories of Jews being helped to flee Europe during World War II. And I point out in the book that the, she wasn't the only one who made this uh, comparison. Uh, a teenager, uh, Lynn Vo, who escaped from Saigon in an American helicopter on the last day, um, later settled in California and raised a family and became a part-time poet. And he credited the U.S. defense attache in South Vietnam, uh, Major General Homer Smith, with saving his life. And in one of the poems he wrote to Smith, he said, uh, the general issued an order, his soldier put my name on the list, I will never forget my American Schindler. And he established a, a prize, the General Homer Smith Prize, which he awarded annually to, quote, a U.S. citizen's distinguished contribution, which makes one proud to be an American. Um, and when uh, General Smith uh, died, and General Smith, by the way, was one of the military people who really, really looked the other way as uh, these evacuation flights at the beginning uh, were taking out hundreds and hundreds of Vietnamese. Eventually, the U.S. government had to play catch up and, and approved um, their resettlement and their evacuation. Anyway, uh, Lynn Boy, uh, when General Smith died in 2011, Boy uh, traveled on a series of Greyhound buses all the way to San Antonio to go to his funeral and wrote a tribute that he left at the funeral that said, you saved thousands of lives, a repeat of Schindler's List, I was among them. Uh, there were other people I interviewed as well, other Vietnamese who made similar um, comparisons to their uh, American rescuers. Right. Thank you so much, Thurston. Listeners, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Thurston Clark. 
The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Thurston Clark, author of Honorable Exit, How a Few Brave Americans Risked All to Save Our Vietnamese Allies at the End of the War, published by our friends at Anchor Books. Thurston, I want to talk a little bit about the current military conflict in Afghanistan, specifically about America's involvement, and you mentioned this as an inspiration for this book. How does the conflict with Afghanistan compare with the war in Vietnam, and how does the reception of Afghanistan refugees in America compare to that? of the refugees from Vietnam? Yeah, I'd like to just back up a second uh, to Iraq and then go to Afghanistan because it was the Iraq war that actually um, got me interested in this. Um, One of the uh, high school classmates and best friend of my daughter's um, is in the army and and served in Iraq Um, as an intelligence officer and he had a lot of Iraqi nationals who were interpreting and helping him there. Um, and he came back a few, when he came back uh, several years ago, uh, he was very distressed about the fact that he, the, the interpreters and their families, although their lives were putting their lives at risk because of their uh, relationship with the American uh, forces, couldn't easily get visas. There is a program for them, but it takes years and there's all kinds of vetting. And meanwhile, some of them have, have been uh, murdered and assassinated while they're waiting. Um, and so that made me interested about, the. it got me interested in the whole Vietnam situation and what we did with all the South Vietnamese who had been uh, allied with the United States. And that's how I kind of got into the story. Now, as for the Afghanistan um, situation, um, that that's, I've, I've looks like we might be heading for for a similar kind of denouement because uh, I, I, the connection between the Paris the Paris Peace Accords and the um, agreements that are being uh, signed and negotiated to get us out of Afghanistan um, look to me as if uh, the Taliban is going to be have some kind of power there either in the government or they're finally going to just as the North Vietnamese did take over the country and then the question arises what happens to all of the Afghanis the police the military the people in the government who have allied themselves with the United States and who have been fighting the Taliban where are they going to go Um, the Vietnam situation was unique in that not only we we had so many Americans who had married Vietnamese and who were living there, but also the geography. There was nowhere for the South Vietnamese to go except to get on ships and to get on planes and be taken to the Philippines, Guam, and then to the United States. 
on one side there was Cambodia, which the Khmer Rouge had taken over, so none of them were going to go there. To the north is North Vietnamese, North Vietnam, and Laos, which was then communist as well. Um, so they had no, the only way to get them out was to fly them out or take them out on ships. Now, in the case of Afghanistan, you've got Pakistan. You've already got lots of Afghan refugees that are going into Pakistan, going into neighboring countries. And I think that's going to happen. That's probably going to happen again. So we're not going to have the, the that will release some of the pressure on us to do something for these people who've allied themselves with us. But also, given the hostility of the present administration to immigration, um, I, I think these people are going to be left, most of them are going to be left to their their fate. They're going to be, they're going to flee the country into Pakistan, or they're going to hang around, and many of them may suffer at the hands of the Taliban. If the Taliban, not they won't have to take over the whole government, if they become more powerful, um, these people could be in, in, in trouble. I mean, just look, I understand that we've taken something like the numbers are 16,000 refugees in the last fiscal year. Um, the United States took 130,000 uh, Vietnamese. We took them out in six, in, in, in six weeks. And there's just not the appetite here, um, the political will, I think, to take tens of thousands of Afghans and, 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 and fly them to the United States and, and settle them. I don't think it's going to happen. Now, I should add that there was great resistance in the United States to the South Vietnamese refugees at the time. Uh, Congress didn't want them. The people were sick of the Vietnam War. Um, there was a racist attitude, the racist feeling as well that these were cooks. And, and the people were just, they were sick of the Vietnam War um, and sick of the Vietnamese. And yet, um, the government and, and President Ford uh, did the right thing. Ford uh, stepped in uh, at the end when he saw that all of these Vietnamese were coming to the United States. They were in the Philippines, they were in Guam, they were, we had promised them that we were going to take them out. Um, in the final days, he, uh, he authorized this uh, air bridge that took out many more. The original, the first 10,000 were kind of smuggled out by these Americans. I call them the righteous Americans, like the righteous Gentiles. But uh, in the final days, um, it was a more open uh, evacuation process. Um, and I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, with Afghanistan. I don't think it's going to happen with the Afghan refugees. Um, they, I mean, I think it's possible we're going to see helicopters on the roof of the American embassy again, but they'll be taking Americans out, not Afghans. Right. So I, 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 I think it's going to be a, a heartbreaking denouement eventually, and I don't think we're going to have uh, anywhere near the number of Vietnamese, uh, Afghans that we have Vietnamese in this country. Thank you, Thurston. Um, to spin off a part of your answer there, many of the men in the United States military who are described in this book had come to see Vietnam as their home. Uh, why do you think so many men found a home there and fell in love with this specific country, Vietnam, its culture, and its people? Well, I think that the the, the culture and the people were were more sophisticated than you find in some of the Middle Eastern countries that we've been involved in. In other words, they, the uh, French influence, 
the number of educated uh, civil servants in the military um, was was uh, uh, there was a large cadre of these people. Um, also, um, the religion was much more open. There was a, a 15% of the Vietnamese were Christian Catholics, and the other 85% um, were were Buddhists. And they were more open to mingling with Europeans, to, to intermarrying, to marrying Europeans. That been a, you know, during the French period in in Vietnam, there had been a number of marriages between French and Vietnamese, and there'd been. Um, and the same in the United States. And also, it's a beautiful country. There's beautiful beaches. It's uh, fabulous uh, mountains. I mean, it's a very seductive place. It's a it's a, it's a lovely country and a lovely people. And um, I think that explains a lot of it. Um, there were a lot of. Um, Americans there uh, who had been in the military and they stayed on as contractors and some of them ran private. Uh, they had businesses, they ran bars and restaurants and they had married Vietnamese women and they considered, as the Vietnamese did, they'd come to consider not their Vietnamese families not just being their wives and their wives' parents, but their wives' cousins and, and uncles and grandparents and nieces and nephews. So they had this whole idea, these Americans uh, saw themselves, uh, some of them, as part of a large extended Vietnamese family. And there was one point in the, about two weeks before the uh, evacuation took place where the uh, State Department the government said, all right, to the Americans, we want you to all get out and you can all take your Vietnamese wives and children with you. And the Americans just rebelled. They, they, most of them said, what is it you don't? They had a meeting at the Tanzanian Air Base. Americans said to the, the State Department people, the military, one of them said, what is it you don't understand about family? You know, our families here are not just our parents and our children. We have 25, 30 people, and our wives are not going to leave without their relatives. And that is one of the, their reluctance to leave without taking, you know, 20 or 30 people with them was one of the things that forced the uh, Pentagon and the Ford administration to increase the number of planes and evacuations going uh, because these people, the Americans wouldn't leave without them. And then in the final week or so to get them out, and to get these people out, they approved what they called an affidavit of support, in which you could say that these were family members. Well, a lot of Americans got these affidavit of supports, and they signed them, and then they filled in 10 or 15 names of Vietnamese who they claimed were their adopted children. And they took these forms to Tanzanut, and they were processed uh, by the State Department officials and by the military, who knew, of course, that these supposed adopted children, who were in many cases much older than the people who were supposedly adopting them, well, it was just a, a joke. It was a ruse. It was a way to, you know, have the paperwork and get them out. And uh, you know, thousands of people got out because of these affidavits of support, because the Americans on the ground looked the other way, processing them, and because the Americans who lived in Vietnam were putting all of these Vietnamese friends enlisting them as their adopted sons and daughters. Right. Thank you so much, Thurston. Um, I want to 
allude to something you mentioned when you were giving us a history of the Vietnam War at the beginning of this interview. Um, the Vietnam War is one that occurred under the watch of multiple presidential administrations, not unlike the current conflicts in the Middle East. What kind of difficulties do transitions in presidential administrations present to leadership in the military when the military is embroiled in these wars and conflicts that outlive multiple presidential terms? Right. Well, I think that one of the... Um, I, I'll give you two examples. One is, of course, the Kennedy assassination and Johnson taking over. Johnson didn't have uh, really any foreign policy experience, and he relied on some of the people in the Kennedy administration who had been the more hawkish members of, of Kennedy's administration, uh, Robert McNamara, for one, with George Bundy. Uh, they had been urging Kennedy in the kind of six months or a year before his assassination to increase the number of American troops in Vietnam and to send in, instead of advisors, whole combat units. Kennedy realized that sending combat units to Vietnam and allowing them to engage in combat instead of keeping them as advisors would be a significant escalation and one he was unwilling to do. Johnson um, did it. He did it in 1965. He sent combat troops into Vietnam. And by the time when Kennedy was killed, there were 16,000 American advisors in Vietnam. By the end of the Johnson administration, there were half a million American troops in Vietnam, around a half a million. Um, and so that's what happened, you know, when you had that kind of a transition. You had a president who was very Kennedy, very knowledgeable about foreign affairs, very interested in foreign affairs, and also very suspicious of becoming involved militarily uh, any more than uh, on the basis of advisors. And then you had someone like Johnson who was not as sophisticated, who was not sure of himself, and who was listening to some of the voices that had been urging Kennedy to increase the American involvement. And he listened to them and and and, and followed their advice and ended up um, with, with half a million troops. Um, then you have also the uh, transition um, between Johnson and Richard Nixon. And we now know that during the election in uh, 1968, um, Johnson was getting very close to the kind of peace deal um, in October that um, Nixon would get four years later, uh, five years later, the Paris Peace Accords. Um, and Johnson uh, 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 thought he could get this done before the election, in which case his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who was running as the Democrat, would get a big boost in, uh, in the polls and would probably win. And Nixon found out about this and through the use of intermediaries, um, persuaded or urged the South Vietnamese government um, not to um, agree to the deal, the negotiations that Johnson was pushing, and to wait because he, they'd get a better deal from a Nixon administration. And, and in effect, sabotaged the talks used, you know, to in order to uh, make Nixon's election more likely. Um, and, and this didn't come out until a few years, until until recent, about ten years ago, I think. Um, so that you you have another instance of a transition uh, between uh, governments, between uh, 
two presidents. Uh, Nixon took over uh, in 69, and it would be four years later until we had the Paris Peace Accords and tens of thousands more Americans and many more Vietnamese would die in the, in the interim. Thank you, Thurston. Um, finally, I have to ask, in your opinion, did we as a country learn anything from the war in Vietnam? Well, I thought we had. Um, certainly, the lesson um, was uh, listened to with the first Gulf War. Um, Colin Powell was very aware of the uh, of the lessons of Vietnam, which is that you don't go um, into a foreign war unless you have the support of the country, and you don't do it alone. You 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 bring your allies. You have allies, which we. Well, we had few allies in Vietnam. We had there were a few North South Korean troops and Australian, but he forged this, and the uh, first President Bush forged a huge um, coalition of, of I can't remember how many countries, forty countries or something that were contributing somewhere or another. Not all combat troops, but were contributing, um, and it had generally the support of the American people. And you went in, and you had specific goals, and you had a way to get out. Um, and that's what happened with the first Gulf War. Um, the second Gulf War and the and the Afghanistan thing, um, you did have allies in Afghanistan in the first, and in the second Gulf War. Um, but there didn't seem to be um, an idea about what the you know what victory would look like. What would victory be? Um, Whereas in the first Gulf War, victory was to push the Iraqis out of uh, Kuwait and to and to punish them for for the Kuwait incursion, but not to not to take over the country and occupy the country. So I think that the Vietnam the lessons, the big lessons of the Vietnam War, were still learned, uh, were still obeyed in uh, by Powell and those other people in the military who, of course, fought through the Vietnam War. But then you get, you know, the, the Afghanistan and the Iraq uh, thing. I think the lessons uh, of Vietnam have not been followed to the same extent that they were in the first war, the first Gulf War. Right. Thank you so much, Thurston. And thank you for writing this wonderfully important book. Listeners, I have been speaking with Thurston Clark author of Honorable Exit, How a Few Brave Americans Risked All to Save Our Vietnamese Allies at the End of the War, published by our friends at Anchor Books. Thurston, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Once again, I would like to thank Thurston Clark for joining me. Copies of Honorable Exit, How a Few Brave Americans Risked All to Save Our Vietnamese Allies at the End of the War, can be ordered at www.quillridgebooks.com with free shipping through the month of April. I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate your browsers over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O, K-I-N to get three months of audiobooks the price of one. My name is Jason Jefferies and this has been Bookin'.